is my understanding that Mr. Mike Del Vecchio dropped my name a few times last week, <laughs> calling me out, as it were. I was not playing hooky, I was in chapel hour with the children. Using my name in vain is the phrase that uh, Jim Trott used. Um, but that can't be as bad as what I did to Jed two weeks ago. So I'm going to let it go, and I'm not going to bother Mike beyond that. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 23, or it will also be up above here. Uh, verses 26 to 43. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others, other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. And as we approach the cross this morning, Lord, to study it, we pray that you would help us to bring not just our, our brains, but our hearts as well, Lord. We pray that you would meet us where we are and speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Um, I was racking my brain for the last couple weeks for some sort of amusing anecdote to introduce today's message. And that's a bit tough because it turns out it's hard to make jokes about the crucifixion uh, because torture is not particularly funny. And I observed this to my wife, and she thought of an exception. Uh, uh, <laughs> back in the day, she and I sat and we used to watch uh, the series 24. I don't know how many of you guys watched that show, but, you know, Jack Bauer... You know, it, it, what one of the things that featured prominently in the show and was kind of controversial was torture and the use of torture to extract information. And we used to watch it at night, and we watched all eight seasons, you know, and we thought the kids were asleep. And um, 
Maybe they were, and they were just picking it up subliminally. But one morning, she pointed out to me that, that Alyssa was in the living room, and she had this heavy plug from the lamp. We had this funny little halogen lamp. It had a heavy plug. And she had one of the baby dolls on the bottom step, and she was stabbing it with the plug and saying, plug, plug, plug. She's saying it out loud. And Grace is standing over her shoulder and saying, boo-boo him, boo-boo him, and don't give him a Band-Aid. And I don't know whether they ever extracted the information they were looking for. Um, but they picked up on something. So torture has made me laugh, I guess, in a sense. Um, but torture is rarely funny, at least. Let's just put it that way. Um, but then again, you know, even things that are not supposed to be funny. My kids also play a dinner table game uh, called It's Not Funny. And uh, they take turns looking at each other in a row down around the table and saying, It's Not Funny in their most serious voice. And whoever finally cracks and laughs at this is the loser. And they, I don't know, they go around playing this. So even the not funny things, we, we try to make them funny. Um, but all that aside, the crucifixion really is no joke. Uh, in a serious way, it rather clarifies the identity of Jesus. Mike talked last week about how we see Jesus through the eyes of Pilate and then through Herod and Barabbas. And today's passage is going to continue on a similar theme because I can't really improve on that approach um, Luke is giving us a whole gallery of perspectives on the identity of Jesus. And today we see a series of reactions to the crucifixion itself based on who people believe Jesus to be. In some ways, Jesus' entire earthly life plays out like an episode of Undercover Boss, which some of you have seen that, but the show has two interesting elements. One is how the boss handles, say, working at a register or, or with a mop, you know, and, and the other is how the average Joe in his company is treating the boss when they don't know who he is, right? And that's Jesus's position here. He's the Lord of all creation, but he's suddenly, seemingly at the mercy of that creation. And here at the climax of, of Passion Week, we get a barrage of reactions. One character after another is introduced, and how they react to Jesus tells us a lot about who they think it is, he is, and it's very telling. And that's key because there's no more important question someone will ever be asked than who is Jesus. The answer to that question and what we do with that answer, these are the defining things about our relationship with God for all eternity. So it's a pretty big question. We want to know who he is and what it's all about. We'd like to know the whole point of this story. Uh, we've been in the book of Luke for almost as long as Jesus' earthly ministry, I think. And uh, now that we're finally getting to the end... And to his death, uh, we want to understand what it means for us in particular. So we're going to look closer at the story and see what kind of clues we can get. Who is Jesus, really? Uh, the answer's been presented several times already in this gospel. Uh, Mary was told that he would be a king and the son of the Most High back in chapter 1. That was before he was even born. Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ in chapter 9. And the Father had revealed that Jesus was his son, both at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. So we've heard the claims. The answer's been in there. And some have even believed it. Uh, but faith is proven in action, and a good crisis will often reveal what people really believe. I've heard it said from this pulpit, I believe, and probably by Pastor John, that our hearts are like a glass of water, and if you shake it, water will spill out. But not because shaking the, water, shaking the glass put the water in it. The water was already in there, so whatever was in was going to come out. And uh, a crisis will shake out whatever is in us. Uh, what we really believe is often exposed by our reaction to crisis. If you're a joyful person, that'll be proven in crisis. And if you're an angry person, 
A crisis will reveal that. So today's passage is a definition of a crisis. Uh, No matter what you thought of Jesus when he entered Jerusalem a week ago on the first Palm Sunday, you're probably reevaluating his stock price right about now, you know? What you believe about him is going to be tested by what we just read. So we're going to look at how several people and groups react to this scene and how Jesus responds to them in turn. Now first we meet Simon of Cyrene, and Luke doesn't give us much except his name, his hometown, and that he came out of the blue. Uh, That in and of itself is significant because his name is obviously known to Luke and he feels like it's worth telling to us. Now we know that Cyrene was uh, located in what is today Libya and there was a large Jewish settlement there. So Simon's probably visiting Jerusalem. He's there for Passover and he kind of gets caught unawares. He probably didn't expect to have a role in the local executions. That's not a typical touristy activity. Um, he probably stopped by to see what the hubbub was, and he gets swept up in this story. He's not looking for Jesus, but he gets found somehow. And we have no reason to think he knows anything about Jesus when this happened. Uh, but it's very likely that he learned a great deal about Jesus later, uh, because Mark's gospel gives the name of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, and it seems clear that the early church knew them. And Paul mentions Rufus and Romans and claims to know the mother pretty well. So this seemingly random event leaves a lasting impression on Simon that changes his family. But Luke doesn't really go into all that. But I I would say Simon probably reacts in a mix of bewilderment and disgust. And if nothing else, the whole image is one he can't erase. Uh, What Simon's story tells us practically is that Jesus is even weaker than when we last saw him. Pilate has added a flogging to all his other abuses. And after a long, sleepless night... Uh, Jesus has nothing left in the tank to carry his cross. Uh, His weak legs and ripped up back aren't able to haul a roughly cut 40-pound piece of timber, so Simon carries Jesus' death to him. Uh, In Simon's eyes, Jesus is truly weak and sad, uh, but apparently memorable. Um, But next we meet a multitude of weeping women, uh, who Jesus calls the daughters of Jerusalem in verse 27. Um... They're weeping and lamenting for him. Now, we don't know who they are, but they are Jerusalem natives, and they are clearly supporters of Jesus in some sense. Uh, They're probably the same people who welcomed him to Jerusalem five days before. Um, Who is Jesus to them? Some see him maybe as a miracle worker. Some see him as a potential political leader. Or some see him as a wise teacher or even a prophet or just a really nice guy like a first-century Mr. Rogers. And... I think this is a typical view of cultural Christianity. Churchgoers who don't really know Jesus' true identity, they think he's Mr. Rogers on steroids, the nicest guy in the world. And it's a common misconception among churchgoers, I think. Because that's the sum of what everyone wants Jesus to be. You know, we pour a certain set of hopes and expectations into him, and that's what these women have done as well. And those hopes are being dashed before their very eyes. They're lamenting and weeping because he is dying, and the scene is sad, and they know he's being treated wrongly. But I don't think they really know who he is or what exactly is happening. I don't think that they understand it. I think they feel bad for Jesus and they have pity. But that doesn't mean they know who he is or what it means. To these people, Jesus has become first and foremost a martyr for their various causes. He was going to make their dreams come true and now all hope is lost. Now, I think we all have this natural tendency to make martyrs out of ourselves and out of others. Um, It's a way to explain our frustrations and make excuses for our failures. It's easier to believe in a lost cause than knowing what would have happened in reality, right? 
So like sports fans, you know, if you're a Phillies fan, if you're old enough, you, you still curse the strike of 1981. That was supposed to be our repeat year, and, and then the strike happened, and we didn't get our chance. Or, you know, our team should have done X, and we should have gone all the way, but somebody got injured, and so, you know, that's your, that's your martyr. Uh, politically, I was banking on Marco Rubio winning the New Hampshire primary last year. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, you know, but if only Chris Christie wasn't such a jerk, he'd be president today. You know, I, I could do that. I could follow that line. Uh, the South, after the Civil War, how many decades did they spend blaming Pickett's Charge and everybody else involved with it at the battlefield of Gettysburg, you know? It's in our nature. Um, and don't get me wrong, I, I think these women are genuine in their sorrow. I mean, they're tears of real sadness and disappointment. They're tears of sorrow for an innocent man. And plus, there's the real sorrow over their Roman occupation, because watching your occupiers kill your fellow countrymen, that's demeaning. And death is sad in any season, especially when it's undeserved. And this was certainly a dark event, even from a human perspective. But look at Jesus' response as astounding. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus always amazes me, because I'm a sucker for crying women, okay? When women cry, I melt. Don't get any ideas, girls, Grace and Alyssa. I know they're listening. Uh, now, Georgia almost never cries. That's not her fault. She's Irish. But when she does, I know something's really bad. When she cries, she's literally unable to speak because she's too upset, and all I can do is hold her or rub her back and wait for the inevitable tongue lashing that's coming at the end because I know it's probably my fault. And I know it's sinful, but I'm actually relieved when it turns out to be someone else. When she finally comes up for air, I brace myself, and on rare occasions, it'll turn out to be someone or something else. And my first response is, and then I launch into, you're right, honey, that's so wrong of so-and-so, and I pile right on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with her. But Jesus finds a way to be stern with these weeping women. Even as he nears his execution, he finds the energy to rebuke and correct these women. Jesus doesn't want their pity. He sees their tears, and he turns it right back on them. He says, don't weep for me. In the big picture, pity is not the appropriate response if you know who Jesus is. He is not a martyr or a victim. And if they understood why Jesus had come and why he was dying, their tears would have had more to do with their own sin. The people of Jerusalem might have seen that their own sin was what was driving him to the cross. And there might still be tears, but they would be quite different, more bitter, more stinging, more remorseful. If you've ever seen a Christmas carol, any version of it, uh, there's a very powerful moment when the ghost of Christmas present is showing Scrooge around, but when he tells Scrooge that Tiny Tim will die, and Scrooge is filled with grief, and he says, no, that can't be, say it's not so, you know? And the ghost turns and uses Scrooge's own words on him and says, if he's going to die, let him do it and decrease the surplus population. Ouch. Scrooge goes from pity to guilt-stricken, instantaneously. It's still sadness, but it's a very different flavor. 
Pity and remorse are not the same thing. And as long as these women are filled with pity, Jesus says they may as well direct it at themselves. Little do they realize that whatever they feel for Jesus is going to seem quaint. Watching one man die unfairly will look like child's play when Rome comes and burns Jerusalem to the ground in a little while. Jesus warns them that if they live to see Jerusalem's fall in 70 AD, they will be glad to be childless. Can you imagine Jesus saying such a thing? The guy who loves kids, who rebuked his disciples for shooing them away? For him to say that kind of statement? But the only thing that makes the complete destruction of a city even worse is having people you care about inside of it. And if the people you care about are kids, that makes it all the worse. Because they're the hardest to protect and the hardest to travel with. So we worry about them the most. And Jesus knows all that. And he knows how bad the Roman destruction will be. So he redirects their pity. He goes so far as to say that they will wish the very mountains would crush them. That a natural disaster will seem preferable when Rome gets through with them. It's the very thing that made Jesus weep when he arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday at the beginning of the week. His warning echoes Jeremiah when he says, Behold, the days are coming when... That's a very Jeremiah-type formula that prefaces judgment. And in verse 30, he borrows language from Hosea 10.8. It's also pointing to judgment in the form of complete obliteration. When he says, they'll say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. The hills are not a cover of protection here. It's better to picture a landslide or the eruption of a volcano crushing a town. In short, Jesus is saying, if you think this is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. You're going to get even worse. And he seems to imply, moreover, that they'll deserve it. It's a form of judgment. Not necessarily on these women particularly, but Jerusalem generally will be getting its comeuppance for rejecting the prophets and, more importantly, for rejecting the Son of God. This is exactly what Jesus taught in the parable of the tenants in chapter 20. And it shocked people then, and it's shocking in this scene. It's still shocking today. Now, he tells this little proverb in verse 31 here, If they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? I've read several commentaries. They all call it a proverb. They think maybe it was common at the time. Nobody seems to know for sure what he means by it. And it sounded almost like southern wisdom to me, so I looked online for comparable redneck proverbs to no avail. Uh, But Jesus' basic meaning is something like this. I'm like a tree cut down in its prime, and green wood is tough to burn, but Jerusalem is like a tinderbox, a bonfire waiting to happen, so you better watch out. He couldn't be any clearer if he was a button hook in the well water. Now, that's from the music man, not from the redneck sites, but anyway. Um, next, we, we get a glimpse of the Roman answer to who he is. Going back over here to uh, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Um, We see that Rome officially sees Jesus as a common criminal. Not that Pilate really thought Jesus deserved death. We we saw that. But he didn't think he was anything special either. Uh, He wasn't about to hold a special crucifixion just for him. We might as well settle the rest of our Friday business, right? Uh, Any other hangings today? Very good. Send them all up. Just another day in the life of a Roman province. The executioners helped themselves to his clothes. It's just like any other day at the crosses. Uh, But if we were writing this story, Jesus would have been crucified alone so that all the attention would be on him. 
Uh, fiction avoids this sort of fluff, usually. But Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, just as Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 53 of that book. Now, verse 35 is interesting. I'm going to read the first half of it. The people stood by watching. The people of Jerusalem, plus visitors like Simon and others, are standing and watching in silence at this point. There's a crowd for sure, but they say nothing. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that there were many passers-by who were mocking Jesus. Um, But I think Luke is focused on the spectators who stayed to watch. We get no snapshot of what they're thinking of Jesus. Is he a dying celebrity, a troublemaker, a criminal, a false messiah, a martyr? Maybe they heard his warnings to the women and they think he's just kind of a jerk. Who rebukes crying women? What's with this guy? I think if they believe he's the son of God, silence is a strange way to show it. They stand there as if they're numb, saying nothing, but not daring to look away. One gets the impression that they don't know what to make of him anymore. There's a lot of questions on their minds. Jesus is a mystery to them. However, the Jewish leaders know exactly what to make of him, reading the rest of that verse. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So here's your religious leaders. They finally got their way. Jesus is hanging and on his way out. He's no longer a threat. Yet they come out of their way to scoff and make fun. Now what does that say about who they think Jesus is? I think it supports our conclusion of the other week that they suspect he just might be the Son of God. The suspicion is strong enough that they still see him as dangerous even on a cross. They can't afford to walk away. They need to make doubly sure that he actually dies, and they need to mock and discredit him until his last breath. They need to make his followers feel small while they hide in the shadows watching their master die. They need the movement to die with him. They need to put Jesus out of business. I've heard it said that your hearing is the last thing to go when you're dying, and I have some reason to believe that, but I imagine that their mocking words were among the last things Jesus heard. The behavior is nasty, it's uncivilized, it's cruel, and it's blasphemous. And they may not know for sure who Jesus really is, but they only know that he cannot be the Christ, not because it's impossible, but because it's unacceptable to them. He is their enemy. The Roman soldiers have no better idea who Jesus is. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself! There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. They probably haven't followed much of this Jesus story. They're not from the area. Probably Italians, troublemakers that we are. They're just part of the Jerusalem garrison. And until they get sent somewhere else in the empire or they get to retire to Rome. But they happily join in the laughs. They probably read the placard over him earlier and they probably laughed. <laughs> Good one, Pilate. He's a riot, that guy. Hey, you in the middle, you must be the king guy. Come on down, your majesty. Now, I don't think it's personal for them in the same way. I mean, they offer their wine to Jesus, and it's almost like, you know, hey, look, no hard feelings, pal. Here, have a swig, buddy. They're just like the temple guards in that they just don't take him seriously. They don't have it in for him like the Jewish leaders. They're probably cruel to lots of guys who come through to the crosses. Jesus is just a crackpot bumpkin of a preacher who messed with the wrong people. He's a joke more than anything. It's just another one of these internal squabbles in the backwater dump that is Judea. 
just another Friday crucifixion out here in the sticks. So far, we've seen Jesus. He's a, he's a martyr, a mystery, a common criminal, dangerous threat, or a joke. And some of these people are meeting Jesus for the first time, and others are sympathizers. But either way, we still have nobody with a clear picture of Jesus' true identity. Nobody gets him yet. The disciples should, but I'm sure they're wrestling with doubts right now. And Luke doesn't even mention their whereabouts right now. And I think it was his way of showing mercy, not to shame them. And perhaps nobody in this passage really knows who he is or what they've done. But everybody in this crowd bears some responsibility for his death. Either legally, physically, or because of their sin. Everybody at the cross is guilty in some sense. And in this light, Jesus prays in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Could there be a more merciful prayer from someone who has more of a right to be angry? His prayer reinforces this idea of mistaken identity. They know not what they do because they know not who he is. The Romans have no reason to know what they are doing, and the Jewish leader certainly did have some reason, and I've seen it argued, depending on the commentary, that he was either asking for forgiveness for both the Romans and the Jews, or just the Roman executioners, or everybody involved, but it cannot be denied that the prayer had impact. John Calvin describes it this way. He says, it cannot be doubted that this prayer was heard by the Heavenly Father, and that this was the cause why many of the people afterwards drank by faith the blood which they had shed. And you don't need to go far to see how true this is. We've seen the evidence that Simon became a believer. And we know that the faith spread like fire among the people in Jerusalem. In fact, the church in Jerusalem became the center of the faith by Acts 15. Cornelius the centurion became a believer in Acts 10. And I think that was just the start of such conversions among Roman troops. I think it's possible the faith traveled a great deal with the soldiers throughout the empire. And Acts 6 even tells us that a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith which means of all the groups present and responsible for Jesus' execution, all became well represented in the church. It's an answer to Jesus' prayer, and it's to God's great glory. But we get two final responses to Jesus in these closing moments. Luke is slowly zooming in the camera. He goes from Simon to the followers to the people at large to the Jewish leaders and then to the Roman guards. And now we're in front of the cross. And we get to eavesdrop on the last conversation between Jesus and two thieves. These guys are called criminals or thieves, depending on your translation in Greek, it's literally evildoers. It's possible they were involved in the same insurrection as Barabbas. They may be the guys who are still on the hook for starting that riot. In any event, it's certainly less surprising to find them in this situation. These are the -the run-of-the-mill executions you would expect to see, and yet they have the unlikely privilege of having direct access to Jesus in his and their last hours. And it makes for an interesting exchange, and it gives us two final answers to the great question of who Jesus is. I'm going to read this section again. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
The first time I remember hearing this passage with New Year's was at Olney Presbyterian Church, and I think we were there for a Good Friday service, and I was sitting with my dad, and my friend, Pastor Bruce Becker, was reading this passage, and I looked at my dad sitting next to me, and tears were in his eyes. And it blew my mind. As an easily distracted kid, I'm barely paying attention anyway. How could anybody get so emotional over such a little story? But I never forgot that, and it comes back to me every time I read it. Two responses to Jesus. His entire earthly ministry boiling down to the perspective of two condemned criminals. And under the same sentence, on the same day, likely for the same crime, who have mere hours to live. And Matthew tells us that they both started off by insulting him, but over the course of three hours, they reach totally different conclusions. The pain of crucifixion has a clarifying effect on the mind, I suppose. The first thief, Luke tells us, he railed at Jesus. The Greek is literally that he blasphemed him. Are you the Christ? Then save yourself and us while you're at it. Now what can we tell from his words? First of all, he is angry. He's demanding answers and judging Jesus for not giving them. In his moment of crisis, he feels abandoned by God. When he says, are you not the Christ, he is showing that he resents God. He is doubting Jesus' greatness. He doesn't see the God-man, but a defeated man. And I think he would prefer to be hanging next to Barabbas, the revolutionary. At least they would be going down in a blaze of glory together. If we're correct that he was part of Barabbas' insurrection, he's probably angry at Jesus for not being a part of it. He's probably thinking, you know, here we are trying to overthrow the government, and you come into town with some peacenik movement. You have thousands of followers shouting Hosanna, energy that would have been helpful to the cause, and you tell them to stand down. Some revolutionary leader you are. Well, here's your last chance. Get us out of this one, oh, Mr. Christ. This guy is full of despair. He isn't just selfish in his request, he's sarcastic because he has no illusions that Jesus will get him down from that cross. He doesn't believe Jesus is either good enough or great enough to do that. He is a man who has reached his end and knows it, and he is full of bitterness and regret and fury against God. So who is Jesus to him? A liar, a loser, a failure. And not only that, but my circumstances are really his fault. Because even if he could save us, he won't. And this, my friends, is a picture of the world denying God's power and then blaming him for not being there. This is the world when crisis strikes, pointing fingers and demanding answers and asking a God they don't believe in to relieve the pain they can't explain without ever once asking him what the pain means. They demand goodwill and favor from the God they reject. This is why the world avoids talking about death and the grave, because they rightly fear it, and when it is spoken of, they do so in jest. Comedians make light of it, and so do cartoons. They lie to themselves and say, it won't happen to us, I'll never get old. But when the unavoidable comes, it's an awfully bitter pill to swallow. And those who die peacefully do so because they believe their own lies, that they really aren't so bad compared to everybody else, and that there is no hell anyway. And if we live according to this worldly wisdom, we'll be no better off than the first thief, only coming to Jesus to relieve us from our sufferings without believing that he can or will. But now look at the second thief. I'm going to read it again for emphasis. The other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man knows three things, things that we need to know as well. Firstly, he knows God. He rebukes the other thief for not fearing God, because this thief still has that fear. Even with all the wicked he has done, he knows God is holy, and he knows that God is just, and he knows he's going to face him soon. So knowing who God is puts a lot of things in perspective, doesn't it? But second of all, he knows himself. He knows he is a sinner. He knows that his sentence is fair. He knows that he deserves to die. But thirdly, and most refreshingly, after everything else we've read, is that he knows Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong, he says. Oh, he knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows the charges were trumped up nonsense. He sees the travesty of justice. But more specifically and importantly, he knows who Jesus is. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He sees the real Jesus. This dying criminal giving painful sideways glances through the sweat and bloodshot eyes at the bloody, exhausted, ripped up body of a defeated and dying man on the next post. He hears all the leaders and soldiers and the other criminal reviling him. He makes the painful effort to twist his neck enough to look at Jesus and he looks at him and he sees a king. Take a moment and envision how incredibly unlikely that is. Someone finally gets it. He knows Jesus' true identity and he puts his faith in him. This guy puts his hope in a dying man without the benefit of hindsight knowing what's going to happen in three days. Not to save him from death, not to save him from suffering, not even to save him from disgrace, but to save him from hell. And how does Jesus respond to such faith? Truly I say to you, good luck in purgatory? Wait a minute. No, hold on a second. Let me double check. No, okay, all right, wait a minute, yeah. No, I should hope that this verse would forever shatter that idea. We should sell bumper stickers, purgatory, because Jesus didn't suffer quite enough for you. No, what does he say? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He welcomes him with open arms and promises him safe refuge on the other side. And please notice that he doesn't just promise heaven. He doesn't start describing heaven. He promises himself. You will be with me in paradise. And he offers this to a man who has nothing to give. What does this thief bring to Jesus? His good deeds? His reputation? His baptism? He is in no position even to promise a reformed life. It's too late for that now. What does he bring to Jesus? The answer is absolutely nothing. Because when you figure out who Jesus is, that's all you have left. Whether you're dying or have your whole life ahead of you, whether you are rich or poor, come from a good family or not, whether you've led a good life or been a scoundrel, you bring absolutely nothing to the table. But Jesus can work with nothing. He saves serial killers, he saves thieves and rebels, and he can save you. And that is the scandal of the gospel. And the 
world finds it offensive. offensive. Um, but it may be foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And I say that if you haven't yet decided for yourself who Jesus is, I give you the example of the second thief, the only one who got it, and who we will meet in eternity. He is the hope of every deathbed confession, and I suspect that we will be surprised at who we'll meet in heaven on that basis. It's never too early and it's never too late to recognize your king. Because one day you will face your own crisis and will have to decide who this guy is for you. But Jesus is a good guy to have for a king because he's already done all the heavy lifting. So bring your big fat nothing to him because it's really all you have. And praise God, he asks for nothing more. Believe in him and just as he promised the thief, he will remember you and you too will be with him in paradise. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your son. Thank you for sending him. And I thank you for his death on the cross. I thank you that he was no mere martyr, that he didn't die for his beliefs or some generic cause, Lord. He died for his church. He died for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for his work. We pray these things in Jesus' name.